Hello and welcome to the Mongol Empire podcast. My name is Cory and this is episode 4.1 of a new mini-series named Consolidation, in which we cover the period between 1206 and 1211, a time when Chinggis Khan prepares for war with the Jin. This gives us quite a lot to look forward to. We have campaigns against the Naiman, the Tanguts and the forest tribes to deal with. There are family disputes to resolve, we have alliances to confirm, and there is a potential manhunt. All the elements of a compelling story with the usual in-depth analysis thrown in to help us understand how the events came to pass. Much like the rise of Temujin, I've not set myself an episode limit, so we'll keep on going with consolidation until it's done. One difference between this series and the rise of Temujin is that I've got a few more supplemental episodes planned, mostly relating to the societies we will encounter beyond the confines of the steppe. Of course, life does have a habit of getting in the way, so we'll have to see how that pans out for us. And talking about life getting in the way, this episode should have marked the one year anniversary of the podcast. I had planned on releasing a few additional episodes throughout October to celebrate, but a house move and my internet being turned off rather early uh, put paid to that idea. There has been some upside to the delays for the podcast. One of the episodes was going to be, or is going to be, about the Imperial family. Uh, I've just come across a couple of very interesting and very good sources to help create that episode, and I've now actually got the time to properly read and include them. So whilst you've had to wait an extra month for this episode to appear and celebrate the birthday of the podcast, hooray, uh, you will hopefully get better quality supplemental episodes in the coming months. So now that we are done with the formalities, we pick up the story from where we finished in 3.10, which was, of course, the death of Jamuga and the confirmation of Temujin as Chinggis Khan. We close the episode with a quote from the secret history. Just in case you missed it, right at the end, very easy to do, let's refresh our memories of this momentous occasion. Quote, And so, in the year of the tiger, having set in order the lives of all the people whose tents are protected by skirts of felt. The Mongol clans assembled at the head of the Onan. They raised a white standard of nine tails and proclaimed Chinggis Khan the Great Khan. End quote. This is actually quite a straightforward quote to unpack. Having now defeated half of the Naiman, conquered the Merkit, and ended the last bits of Mongol resistance to his rule, Temujin brought his nation together on the Onan River, where an assembly of leaders raised his standard and elected him Chinggis Khan. But what does this name actually mean? What was the process that led to his election? The secret history moves straight on to the reorganisation of the nation, so we don't get any further information about the actual ceremony at this point from the source. This means that we need to look beyond the current events, and bring in some secondary sources for the answer. So strap yourselves in, because this is going to be a theory-heavy episode. There are three questions that we need to answer before we move on to looking at what actually took place in the Kirill Tai. The first two questions we've already asked. 
what does the name Chinggis Khan mean, and what was the process that gave Temujin this title? We know it's called the Kirultai, but what went on? The last question I want to explore is whether an understanding of the name Chinggis Khan can give us any insight into Temujin's motivations. This is an idea I've had floating around in my head for a little while, but the answer I'm going to provide here is only really my initial thoughts on the subject. So expect a fuller look at Chinggis Khan's motivations in a summary episode coming sometime after his death in 1227. For now, let's start with the question of what does Chinggis Khan mean? Like many things relating to the early period of the Mongol Empire, the name Chinggis Khan has a degree of uncertainty surrounding it. Let's start with pronunciation. You probably all know Chinggis as Genghis or Genghis Khan, but this came about from a misreading of the Persian manuscripts by 18th century French scholars, and it's just kind of stuck around. You shouldn't take that as a criticism. I'm very much aware that despite my best efforts to try and correctly pronounce everything, a lot of people will be flinching every time I say a name other than my own. The name itself is believed to be Turkic in origin, rather than Mongolian or Chinese. But I've not really discovered whether Chinggis represents a Mongolized version of the Turkic name. I'm sure an answer is out there somewhere. Moving on from name butchery, the most commonly accepted interpretation of Chinggis Khan is that it means Tengis or Ocean, an old name which recognises the universal nature of Temujin's rule. Another idea put forward by Igor Dirakovilts, one of the most influential scholars of Mongol history, is that it was a Turkish word meaning hard or severe. Now, I've not been able to get a copy of his 1989 article, the title Khan Kagan, re-examined. However, Rachnevsky states that the word Ching has been used by various Mongolian tribes to describe the words firm, strong, righteous, loyal, hard, or cruel. I don't really feel that I am in a position to offer an opinion about this interpretation. However, we can begin to investigate the idea of Chinggis meaning universal ruler, and how that would tie into Temujin's motivations for conquering the steppe. The information for the next section of the podcast is largely taken from, and I'm sorry if I make a complete mess of this name, Lamshuren Munka Erdena's 2018 article, The Rise of the Chinggisid Dynasty, Pre-Modern Eurasian Political Order and Culture at a Glance. As I stated earlier, this will only be a preliminary look at the subject. The article itself is quite a technical read, and relies on the interpretation of language used in the secret history, so I need to reread it and flesh out my own ideas a little bit more. I also want to bring in later conquests, and look, of course, for more studies on the subject. So what was the Universal Khan? And why would Temujin be striving to be it? The concept itself is quite straightforward. Munka Erdena posits that there was a general belief on the steppe that a single ruler would unite all the people living under felt tents into one tribe. This is something that had been achieved by Mongolian tribes in the past, and more recently the steppe had been conquered and controlled by the Khitan Liao. So this wasn't just some kind of pipe dream. 
The article takes this idea one stage further and states that all of the main players in the secret history held this belief and, in fact, Onkan was the universal Khan. The evidence offers some support for this idea. Togril was the undisputed leader of the Kareid and also held rule over the majority of the Mongol people, who seemed fairly happy to recognise his position as their leader. Togril had links with the Merkit and was the grandfather of Togtogebeki's son Chilagan, and he was considered a big enough threat to the Nayman for Inanch Bilga Khan to support a rebelling brother. Inanch Bilga Khan was also vying for the title, and likely hoped that his support of Urkakara would bring all of the groups controlled by Togril into the Nayman sphere. If we view the Mongolian Wars as a part of a larger game to become this universal Khan, how does it change the way we previously approached events? The first example given by the article is of Jamuga's election as Gurkhan in 1201. Gurkhan was the name used for the Universal Khan, and tribes and clans who had elected Jamuga to the position did so with the expectation that they would be ruled directly by him. Therefore, Jamuga's subsequent declaration of war on Onkan and Temujin was not the act of a coalition looking to break the growing hold on Mongolia by the Jin-backed Koreaid Mongols. Instead, it was a power grab looking to place Jamuga on Togaril's throne. Jamuga's defeat ended his claim of being the universal ruler, and those who supported him were under no obligation to remain with him, so his army broke up, and Jamuga was reduced to supporting the claims of other men. By this point though, Togril was no longer a young man, and the question of who would succeed him as universal Khan was intensifying. His only legitimate son, Sengum, was naturally first in line. However, Togril's unpredictability muddied the succession, with Temujin being one of the chief beneficiaries of this lack of clarity. The constant support Temujin gave to Onkan from 1196 had almost allowed the Mongol leader to place himself into the Koreid line of succession. But before he could legitimise his position as Togril's heir, he was outmaneuvered by Sengum and Jamuga, isolated and left on the edges of the competition. The Battle of Kalakaljitsans should have been the end of Temujin's candidacy to be Universal Khan, but a few factors allowed him to continue to push his case. Firstly, Sengum's injury convinced Togril that breaking his oath to Temujin had been viewed badly by heaven, and to sustain the attack against his former liegeman and ally would only bring further punishment onto himself so he allowed Temujin to remove his army to a more isolated part of the steppe where it could recover and he could gather his forces. The second factor was the attempted coup d'etat led by the Mongol faction of Togrul supporters. This move represented Altan, Kuchar and Daratai's attempts to claim the Korea throne, with one of them, possibly whoever was the most senior, taking Ong Khan's place as the universal Khan. The failure of the plot led to the weakening of all factions except for Temujin, who was growing in strength in Baljuna. The final factor was that the organisation of Temujin's tribe prevented the same fragmentation as we saw when Jamuga's bid for the throne collapsed. The loyalty of every person in his tribe was to Temujin only. 
Leaders who had brought larger followings, such as the Uruguay Jurchidai or the Ikiris Botubutu, had completely bought into Temujin's philosophy and had been handsomely rewarded for their continued loyalty with positions of influence or marriage into the Mongol leader's family. Whilst Temujin had originally obtained his position as Khan of the Mongols by election, the people who had made the decision were either dead, in opposition, or in disgrace. His council was now made up of his immediate family, his brothers, mother, and wife bought, and men he had elevated without consideration of their previous social status. Rejecting Temujin's rule would be ruinous to their new social standing, and most of his advisors would have nowhere else to go. So unlike Gurkhan Jamuga, Temujin's power did not rely on the whims of other, stronger men, and therefore the threat of fragmentation after Kalakaljid was greatly reduced. All of these factors allowed Temujin to attack and defeat Ong Khan and claim the title of Universal Khan for himself in the winter of 1203, which Rashid al-Din states he did. As I stated earlier, the idea of a Universal Khan was not exclusive to the Mongol people, and Munka Erdena states that Taiyang Khan of the Neyman was another leader who viewed himself as it. The alliance offer he sends to the Ongud leader Alakush is a declaration that he views himself as the sole claimant to the title of Universal Khan. Temujin's preemptive attack halted his own preparations to legitimise his position as the Khan, but a subsequent defeat of the Neyman alliance removed any further external challenges to his claim. Temujin now had the time he needed to hold a Kuriltai, which he was able to do in 1206, and this is possibly why Rashid states that he became Chinggis Khan again at this point. I hope you're still with me after all that. To sum it up, essentially the idea that Temujin was striving to become the Universal Khan gives credence to the idea that he would take a title that would represent that achievement. Gurkhan was not an appropriate title because Jamuga had recently used it, and it perhaps did not accurately reflect the scale of Temujin's achievements, whereas Tengis or Chinggis was an excellent alternative. If we accept that Temujin was attempting to fulfil some kind of step prophecy by becoming Universal Khan, then it potentially offers us some insight into his motivation, and provides the beginning of an answer for our final question. Uh, don't worry, we will be coming back to question two in just a moment. As I've already said, Temujin's motivations are something I want to come back to in greater depth at a later point. So this is really just a preliminary look, and my ideas are likely to evolve, probably just change completely, knowing the way I think. Many of the events that have led to the Kirill of 1206 can be viewed in the context of revenge. Revenge on the Tata, the Taichi good, and the Merkit. Revenge on Togtogebeki, Jamuga, and Onkan, a spiralling series of blood feuds which resulted in the conquest of the steppe. This idea is fine, but it lacks the subtleties and intricacies of human nature. For one thing, the narrative of revenge doesn't account for Temujin trying to insert himself into the Korea line of succession, or accepting the support of the Jin. These suggest a man with greater ambitions and forethought, rather than one merely striking out at everyone who has ever wronged him. Viewing the secret history through the lens of the universal Khan allows us to see Temujin's story as one of a man who dreamt of being a nation-builder. After years of poverty and living in obscurity, 
He used the few connections and advantages he had to be recognised as a legitimate tribal leader. He allowed people from all levels of society to join him, with the only requirement being unconditional loyalty to himself. Temujin's people skills, for want of a better term, quickly turned him into a popular young leader, resulting in his elevation to Mongol Khan. Whilst this election may have been a power play by senior members of the Borjigin family, Temujin's objections appear to have been more theatrical than sincere, suggesting that he wanted to be Khan, he had a plan, and he was happy to use these family members to achieve his goals, disposing of them once their usefulness was done. We hear little of his own campaigns during his early reign, except for defeats and those he carried out as part of an alliance. So it seems likely that he was too weak to be a real threat to the established clans and tribes. His defeat to Jamuga at Dalambaljut and the time Temujin then spent in the wilderness seems to have been the catalyst for advancing his own ambitions. He made connections and alliances with the frontier tribes and came to the attention of the Jin. Perhaps it was in the years prior to 1196 that he realised an alliance with the Jurchen and temporarily disregarding what they had done to his ancestors could give a major boost to his career. He just needed a way to prove that he could be useful to them. Two things turned Temujin from nomad nuisance to valuable ally. The first was the attack on the Tartar, which showed his skill as a commander. This was followed by his possession of the recognised Universal Khan. An alliance with Temujin was suddenly very attractive, and perhaps gave the Jin some hope that the increasingly restless frontier could return to some sort of stability. The campaigns after the crowning of Togrul as the Yong Khan show a lot more structure and planning. The first task was to re-establish or at least give the illusion that Togrul was back as the independent Universal Khan. With that job done, the pair went about weakening all rivals with acclaimed Togrul's throne. Between 1196 and 1203, Temujin was the power behind the Koreid throne. He now just needed to usurp Sengum's position as heir and then wait for old man Togrul to die. Then he could take the Koreid leader's place as Universal Khan. Of course, events in 1203 complicated matters, forcing Temujin to wait another couple of years before he could be legitimised in this position. As I said, these ideas are likely to change as I read more and crystallise my thoughts a bit better, but that seems like a decent start to identifying what drove Temujin to achieve such power. Of course, comments, complaints and corrections can be sent to the usual email address. So having defeated all other claimants to the position of Universal Khan, Temujin convened a Kuriltai in 1206 to confirm him in the position. Which brings us nicely back round to question two. What was the Kuriltai? Just a quick pause here to say that a lot of the information we're going to go through about the Kuriltai comes from Florence Hodas's article, The Kuriltai as a Legal Institution in the Mongol Empire. Full description of the source can be found on mongolempirepodcast.com. In very basic terms, the Kuriltai was a legal institution that brought together the leaders of a group who had worked together to make important decisions which would affect the running of the tribe. The Kuriltai offered all participating parties an active stake 
in the laws of the steppe, and bound everyone to the same rules, often with harsh punishments for breaking them. In later years, the Kuriltai took place in two parts held over many weeks. The first part involved revelry, banqueting, and the exchange of gifts. Essentially, friends and family, who may not have seen each other for years, would catch up and have a great time. The second part of the Kuriltai was the business of government, which included the passing of both legislative and judicial decisions. The social element of the Kuriltai was extremely important, as it reinforced cultural ties in a society that could be spread out over a very wide area. You have to bear in mind that even at this early stage, Chinggis Khan's domain may have stretched from Buir Lake in the east to Lake Zaisan and the Irtish River in the west, a distance of nearly 2,500 kilometres. Having an administrative tool which brought everyone together would have been critical for ensuring that all parts of his nation were singing from the same hymn sheet, as it were. That being said, 1206 is the first time Chinggis is recorded as having employed a Kuriltai when dealing with state business, which suggests the Kuriltai had a far more prestigious role in steppe society than just being a socio-legal gathering. Hoda states that a form of the Kuriltai had been employed across the Eastern Steppe throughout history. The Xiongnu held assemblies three times a year, the pre-dynastic Khitan held one every three years to decide on campaign leadership, whilst the pre-dynastic Jurchen held assemblies to bring officers and common soldiers together to reinforce the unity of the army. In the mid-12th century, we also see candidates elected to lead the Mongol people in campaigns against the Jin. So it was a well-established institution long before Temujin came onto the scene. These occasions also suggest that the Kuriltai was used primarily for making and confirming important decisions, and the confirmation of a universal Khan was exactly this. The Kuriltai gave legitimacy to Temujin's position as the leader of the Mongolian nomads. But hold on just a moment! Haven't we described Temujin as an absolute ruler? So why would he need confirmation from anyone other than himself? Yes, Temujin was an absolute ruler. Decisions, political position, and power all came directly from him, rather than depending on clan hierarchy or seniority. However, the secret history and Rashid both show that Temujin sought out and utilised a wide group of advisors to help make his decisions. He was guided and influenced by family members and commanders, and he valued their input and insight. Additionally, we can infer that the number of councils he organises prior to 1206 suggests that the collegial clan or tribal governance was a fundamental part of Mongol society. Ultimately then, the Khan made the final decision on whatever was being discussed in the Kiriltai, but it does seem to have been a legitimate forum for debate, passing laws and judgment, and for presenting dissenting views. With the expansion of the imperial family and the division of the empire between Temujin's four sons, Kuriltais essentially became an extravagant family reunion, with all the politics that comes with family. But it seems likely that the 1206 Kuriltai was a more inclusive event. Temujin used it to organise his government, reorganise the army, hand out positions to his followers, and to gain the title of Chinggis Khan. And this seems like a good point to put a break in our analysis of the 1206 Kuriltai. We still need to look at what actually took place during it, which we shall do in episode 4.2.
But there is a fair amount to look at, and I really, really don't want to get into the habit of putting out 40 plus minute episodes. For one thing, they are a real pain to edit. So I shall be back at some point in December, and with a little bit more narrative to hopefully banish any sleepiness that this episode may have brought on. In the meantime, if you want more information about the sources used in this episode, head over to mongolempirepodcast.com to find them. They are on the bibliography page and they will cover this episode and all the previous ones. There are also the usual family trees, maps and biographies. If you want to give me feedback, complain about my interpretation of Temujin's motivations, or you just want to say hi, you can contact me by email. It's Corey, C-O-R-E-Y, at mongolempirepodcast.com, or you can find me on Twitter, at mongolempirepod. Otherwise, until 4.2, take care, and thanks for listening.